This podcast is brought to you by CDKeyOffers.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today, as I always do, I will let my guest introduce himself. Uh, hi there. I'm uh, Josh Walrath. I uh, am a writer uh, for PC Perspective. I guess I'm some kind of editor there, but who knows? It's uh, gone through a few iterations over the past few years, and, and everybody's title just tends to get mixed up and and lost uh you know i've i've been writing since 1997 i was 25 years old at the time and uh had been in computers for you know probably about eight years Mm -hmm. before then uh but uh you know i was a big pc world uh reader and uh you know started getting interested in uh, 3d graphics when the uh, matrox millennium series came out and uh, that promised to to accelerate a couple of 3d features and it all sounded great and everything was going to be wonderful and uh of course you know that was that was before voodoo was released Mm -hmm. in 1996 and when voodoo was actually out and i started to get online with uh, aol (laughs) yeah as they were the only isp in laramie uh that you could actually get to um I started to read a couple of websites. Uh, There's this guy named Anand who was <laughs> like 13 years old and, and had just started uh, writing stuff. Uh, Tom, the crazy dentist from Germany, uh, he was doing stuff as well. And I started hearing things about, you know, uh, 3DFX, Voodoo Graphics. Um, and also at the time, uh, we, we started to, uh, you know, the, the AMD K5 was out. Uh, the K6 was about to be released um, in 1997, I believe. And, uh, you know, I just started to, uh, get interested about a bunch of those things. And, uh, one of my first articles was, uh, KNI versus 3D now that, uh, AMD had released and, and talked about at least in 1997. Uh, even though the K62 had not been out yet, they had started talking about, uh, the SIMD type, uh, uh, application in, in their processors. So, yeah, I started uh, writing there in 1998. I think I started penstarsys.com. I wrote there until two, early 2008. I think uh, Ryan, uh, the original owner of PC Perspective, invited me on uh, shortly after uh, we went to a a retreat with AMD in Lake Tahoe where they were releasing the original Phenom. Am I getting that right? I mean, I don't know. I was not there. I can't say for sure. But what I will say is, you know, a lot of the things you're mentioning, I feel like a lot of people currently in PC gaming, I, I think a lot of people, if they're enthusiasts, have heard of them, right? But if they're under the age of 20, even under the age of 30, really, they probably, I, I just feel like there's a lot of people that got into PC gaming, frankly, about five to eight years ago, right around the late GCN Polaris uh, Pascal era. And there's, because that was really the late periods of the PC, what we call 
the PC gaming renaissance. And I feel like we're entering into a new era right about now that is more comparable to what was going on a while ago where, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself in the conversation points that I've outlined, but I I think things in the 90s and before got were incredibly expensive but also performance was just i mean you no one complained because even though they had to pay so much money every year every few years what they would buy is like five times better than what they had before you know and it's just an entirely different paradigm and how you look at well i mean i guess get uh, pc hardware and therefore gaming hardware in general and i was hoping and i'm glad you came on the show Josh, to give some perspective, because I think that a lot of people tend to compare certain eras to like ones that were 10 years before or five years before, and they miss that this is, people have been building PCs for many more than just a couple of decades. Um, So let me actually, before we get deep into some of these subjects, uh, use an opening reader mail question here, which of course people who support Morslaz Dead on Patreon can submit. Manuel Nascimento writes in, and he says, this is a silly question, but could possibly make for a nice intro, icebreaker and tongue loosener. What's the story behind Josh's weekly burger that we always hear on the PC per podcast? And how does Tom like his burgers? Thanks for all the work. Moore's Law is dead crew. And I did see that perusing your Twitter, that there's quite a few burger pictures on there. There's a few burgers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I became a burger enthusiast probably about 10 years ago. There was a place called Burger Extreme here in town, and uh, they went out of business, but then another place called opened up uh, called Born in a Barn, and they were fantastic right off the bat. And uh, what's amazing is they have a very unique special pretty much every oh. week where, you know, it's just... Uh, it's 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 always something new and interesting. May not always be great, but it is different than you know pretty much anything else that I've ever had. And certainly, you know, far different from you know like Five Guys mm-hmm. or Shake Shack or or any of the other uh, fast food places. You know, Wendy's, Burger King. I mean, their stuff is their stuff. But uh, this is this is really kind of an artisanal burger. If you will, and uh, they're made with uh, a lot of care, and uh, someone's got to know about it, right? Sourced. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's uh, that's that's where that came from, and I, I started snapping pictures now and then, and then Sebastian thought that would be a, a kind of a fun. Well, actually, I think it was uh, Jim before him. Uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun to to have that as an opener in the uh, in the show. So we. We get to see that every week. Last one was extremely big and extremely messy, but it was it was tasty. <laughs> yeah, those often go hand in hand. I mean, I would just say I've always been one for like mushroom Swiss burgers, um, but I, but honestly, there's all types of burgers I'll eat, it, 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 especially if it's an interesting looking one. The older I get, I'm like I'm more interested in just trying something new, you know. Yeah. Um, but you did mention where you live. I mean, say as much or as little as you want. I mean, wh- where are you from? Like, what did you, did you, what did you study in college and what, you know, really got you into PC gaming? How long have you been do like cover, like PC gaming in general, not just covering it professionally? Yeah. Um, I was born in a town called Thermopolis, Wyoming. Um, lived there up until 18 and, uh, I got interested in computers probably my freshman year. Uh, a guy named Rick Van Cleve was uh, the the computer teacher, and uh, he had set up a network. And this is back in 1986. And uh, you know, I got to figure out how to use them. Uh, we played some basic games. There was some, you know, back then it was all EGA graphics. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even VGA. 
And so, uh, you know, we had a handful of uh, titles, and I think like by 1989, one of the very, very first Need for Speeds, I think it was Need for Speed, came out. And uh, it was, you know, you were essentially driving on on a hillside, you know, it was cut in corners, and it was a terrible driving game. But, you know, for the time, it was, it was uh, you know, pretty graphically intense, and, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was different. I mean, we're going from, you know, top-down, uh, looking racing games to actual, you mm-hmm. know, kind of a 3D representation, and uh, even though it was very, very basic, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, there was some, you know, basic. I think my freshman year in college, I bought a flight simulator that was a dogfighting uh, thing, and the amount of space <laughs> that it created was dependent on what speed of computer you had. So I had a 8088 mm-hmm. um, knockoff from NEC um, from it was it was a CompuAd. It was a group out of Texas way back in the 80s and early 90s. Eventually went out of business like most of them do. Uh, but it was kind of interesting because it was, you know, it was a fully 3D rendered space with, with wireframe graphics. Uh, but yeah, if you had a 286, then the grid that you were kind of flying above mm-hmm. expanded. And oh, so I see. it was, uh, you know, they, they, they couldn't really scale. So if you had a faster processor like a 386, but you had the 8088 setting, Everything was just way too fast. It, it didn't. It didn't work. And so that was kind of an interesting way that they uh, were able to scale stuff like that. I uh, started, you know, getting into reading a lot of PC World. Later on, Boot uh, was, uh, and that became Maximum PC. But at the time, Boot was a really fascinating uh, uh, magazine. They always had uh, really interesting uh, interviews with like uh, Scott Sellers of 3D Effects, uh, Atik Raza from uh, AMD, who later moved on to other endeavors, uh, but he was kind of the father of the K6. And uh, these things really got me interested in more and more in, in computers. And uh, Well, and how much did that PC cost that you brought up to play that game? That was uh, 1988 is when I bought that. Mm-hmm. And it was on special from CompuAd. It was, it was an 8088 knockoff processor again it was like the nec v20 it ran at 10.7 megahertz i mean it was mm-hmm. not any double real. digits though now you're getting to the double yeah, digits of megahertz. Yeah. so it was it was you know it was faster it was a 16-bit bus um and um i think we paid and it had a nine pin dot matrix printer and that was eighteen hundred dollars and that yeah. came with 720k of ram a 20 megabyte hard drive uh, built-in VGA graphics, and uh, yeah, this was uh, you know it was it was it was a reasonable system at the time. Uh, this was right around the time when the 386 was being released, uh, but you can get like a 386 20 or 25, and one of those basic machines would cost you 3,500 bucks. Right. So, would you say your 1,800 dollar machine was mid-range or something like that? It was low end. Low end, yeah, right? Any any sub two thousand dollar computer was really considered a low end machine, right? And that's funny because I just put eighteen hundred dollars into the inflation calculator, and it it says that's over four grand in today's money. So you'd say a low end gaming PC was really what we would consider now just a god tier PC, yeah. you yeah. know. And I think I, it's just funny you say that because I think a lot of people miss that that it. That it things have been way more expensive than they are now, though, <laughs> a while ago. And that at the same time, though, the games you were playing were just not on 
game consoles for less money. Like, as much as that was expensive, it was like, well, this is the only way you're playing the latest games, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are, you know, games like Ancient Art of War. Uh, you can probably look that one up. That was a, a real-time strategy before real-time strategy games were even a thing. And, uh, you know, they, those those required quite a bit of horsepower at the time, but mine still ran. I just ran it pretty slow. Um, uh, the Space Quest series from... Uh, from uh, Sierra, all these things. And so, you know, when when I started to really kind of get more, my dad had bought me a 386SX20. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1993. And that cost was probably around, it was around 1100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came with a, a 15 inch uh, VGA monitor. Um, it was 386, two megs of RAM. Uh, it was something like a 80 megabyte. Hard drive. Did I say two megabytes of RAM? Two megabytes of RAM. Yeah, and about an eighty meg hard drive. Um, and I mean that was that was beefy from what I came up from. But this mm-hmm. was the time when uh, four eighty six was just uh, being released a few years ago, and uh, you know we hadn't quite entered entered the Pentium age. And um, but when I started getting into it, I you know I remember this distinctly. There was a uh, computer group named Contex. They had a, an offshoot that was, you know, kind of a partner company that all did AMD processors, but Quantex was all Intel, mm-hmm. and uh, they they had, you know, all kinds of high reviews from uh, PC World, and and uh, you know the support was great, and uh, it was reasonable priced, but you know I couldn't afford the top end, but I was able to buy something for twenty four hundred bucks, and that was a Pentium one thirty three processor, which was. Two spots down from the recent released 200 megahertz uh, Pentium, it had 16 megs of RAM, a 1.4 gigabyte hard drive, which was pretty big for yeah. the time, and it had the uh, it had the STB Lightspeed 128, which had 2.5 megs of MDRAM, which allowed me to run at 1024 by 768 in 24-bit color. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was a huge upgrade, and I had a a 17 inch Trinitron from, I guess the company was called Mag Innovision, and uh, for a while there they were they were huge when it came to um, um, you know really high quality displays. And of course this was you know a 70 pound CRT, yeah, <laughs> which sucks, but it didn't have any 3D capabilities whatsoever. I had right. to save another six months, and in January the prices of the original Voodoo graphics. Went from like four ninety nine down to two ninety nine because there was this sudden glut of memory, and the mm-hmm. four megs of memory in that card were really what uh, made it so expensive. It was the Orchid Righteous three D, mm-hmm. and so what a Orchid name! Was a com- yeah, it was. It was. Uh, they were a company out of England, and uh, you know they they no longer exist, of course, these days, but. Uh, they made a really interesting and solid uh, uh, card, and that was the time when it was a secondary card, and so you had to have VGA pass-through mm-hmm. on there. And uh, it didn't affect the visual quality badly, but uh, what was always interesting is whenever you started an actual 3D accelerated game, whether it was Glide or the recently released Direct3D, it would make a clicking sound as your monitor went black and then came back up. Yeah. So, you know, running it at 1024 by 768 on a desktop, you got into 3D application, it, it dropped down to 640 by 480 because that was the max that you could yeah. do on uh, on that series of cards. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, 
It was a ride at the time. So two megs to frame buffer and two megs of texture cache and a total of four megs total on, on that. So that was, uh, you know, when you add that all together, uh, you had a pretty competent um, gaming machine for, you know, approximately $2,700, $2,800. And, uh, but that still wasn't, that wasn't top end. However, you you spend $2,800 now and you've got a beast of a machine. And again, you know, if you go back to this era, I mean, you're thinking like, I don't know, early like PlayStation one time period. They, I mean, I don't know if it was played on those consoles. They weren't exactly very good at 3d. The N64 was okay, I guess, but it had like, could the games could be no bigger than like 30 megabytes or something. So, you know, this is, I mean, how do you see that? How did you see that relation back then? You've always been an enthusiast. You've always been someone that's wanted something decent to game on PC consoles back then were radically weaker compared to where they are now compared to PCs. I feel, Mm -hmm. how did you see consoles in like the nineties? They were kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, there are people who who absolutely love Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64. Sure. Uh, I wasn't one of them. Um, I only, uh, you know, the, the PlayStation was too expensive, and it was only good for one thing. Uh, I, I enjoyed RPG-type uh, games sure. uh, during that time. And so the consoles weren't really, you know, my thing, and I wasn't into racing like I am now, and so yeah, it was it was it was just you know they were kind of boring. I mean they had some interesting titles and you know people who who love like Final Fantasy VII and that. I mean that obviously they were they were on the consoles. Uh, eventually that did make it to the PC, but mm-hmm. you know it was uh, it was always for me. Um, you know PC gaming was was where it was at. And, and this is kind of where I want to start transitioning into late '90s, early 2000s, right? Um, I mean a lot of people bring up the death of like 3dfx which is funny how many people remember 3dfx and their graphics cards but I, when i like refresh myself on some of their information they only existed for like seven years like they really yeah. weren't around that long compared to any other company we're talking about here i mean how did you it, just as to touch on it right how would you summarize what 3dfx did for the pc gaming market or how it affected it it was a, a massive jump in terms of not only visual quality, but how they were able to help uh, game developers, um, you know, they 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 had really tight relationships with a lot of these game developers, and a lot of the initial 3D titles were all based on Glide, which itself is kind of uh, it's it's not a subset of OpenGL, but it uses a, a very OpenGL like structure. And then what they were able to do is have a wrapper, an OpenGL wrapper that took OpenGL commands and then converted them into their API glide. Um, that's, you know, kind of essentially how it worked. And there's, you know, some, some differences in there, but, um, you know, they didn't support OpenGL until much later in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, they always relied on the mini GL or glide. And then they came out with, uh, you know, uh, direct 3d drivers that, that worked pretty well as Microsoft started to enhance those things. But, they had the first real outreach with a lot of these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, gaming creators, and uh, that's why Glide was so powerful for so long uh, in that initial time. And uh, each of the other guys had uh, their own API. S3 had Metal, uh, ATI had 
Oh, was it was it Rage? I can't remember. I know that they're. I don't remember the honestly. Yeah, yeah, but everybody had their own little API. But the easiest one to work with was really Glide, and it was the best supported. They had the the best 3D output, and they improved that when they came out with the Voodoo Two. You had the higher resolution. You could do 800 by 600, or if you put two of them together, you could do the scan line interleave and, and have mm-hmm. 1024 by 768. And, uh, you know, that was a, a very powerful part at the time. And that was when NVIDIA really started to get serious. So the yeah. Rainbow 128 was post-Voodoo graphics, but before Voodoo 2. And, uh, you know, the positive thing about that, it was a 2D, 3D chip. Right. It didn't have any pass-through. It had a unified memory. So you had four megs on these cards. And uh, you could you could run them at 1024 by 768. But you wouldn't want to yeah. in any 3D application because it was just so dog slow. And the Riva TNT came out, and uh, that kind of changed the entire game because it supported uh, 32-bit color. Uh, 3D effects was still in uh, that 22-bit dithered. Um, that was, you know, it was an enhanced 16-bit. And uh, texture sizes were huge because I think 3DFX was limited to 256 by 256 textures. And you could do 1K by 1K, I think, in the TNT. And so... You know, you didn't have the blurry texture issues that that Voodoo uh, always had through Voodoo Three, mm-hmm. um, but it was a. Uh, I mean, they, everything ran fast and everything ran on 3DFX parts, and because uh, that's what everybody had developed on for the past several years, because it had the best product really out there and the best support, and you had other guys like, uh, um, oh, what was their name, uh, Rendition. Um, their V22 series was a somewhat fast product, but it was more of a CPU with some 3D stuff uh, mm-hmm. on there. I mean, it was really interesting how they made it all run. It was pretty clunky. I mean, it worked, but they didn't have enough fixed function in uh, their designs to really compete with you know, what Voodoo had and what uh, the, the uh, NVIDIA was starting to introduce with the Revo 28 and the upcoming TNT. Um, well, you know, it's funny when I look back at this era, anytime there's just so much competition between different companies and yet it's not just in like, who is the highest frame rate? It's like entirely different textures. You can run resolutions, <laughs> types of games. Like when you're yeah. choosing between a graphics card back then, there was a lot more fundamentally to consider in which one you wanted. I mean, what, and, and it, and it always to me seems like, 3DFX went from being number one with a bullet point, massive advantage, controlling the market, to nothing in just a couple of years. Like, how mm-hmm. did that? What really did them in, in your opinion? Uh, there were there were two factors. One, their design capabilities, and I mean, just the, their, their culture was a little bit more relaxed. You know, they had the Voodoo Lounge, the gaming, they had free meals, they had all this other stuff. While Nvidia was extremely focused. Very hungry. Mm. Jensen Wong was driving those people hard uh, with with yeah. the technology, and so even though 3DFX had this you know tremendous uh, advantage at the beginning, they had some design issues later on that that cut back. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe their their reach was farther than their grasp because they they wanted to do some more advanced things with the next generation. And then eventually they're like, well, we need to have a new product because this isn't uh, uh, going as fast as we, we should be. And so they, they kind of optimized the Voodoo 2 to make the Voodoo 3. I mean, they, they, they put in the, the 2D part from Banshee and then essentially um, they, they combined 
you know, the Voodoo 2 in there at a much, much higher speed. Mm-hmm. So you had 133, 166 megahertz, and then 200 megahertz to their top end, the Voodoo 3 3500. And so it was a very, it was a, it was a faster solution than Voodoo 2, but it didn't really give you any more features. It just, it mm-hmm. was a, a 2D, 3D card that had eight megs of memory on it. And so you could run 1024 by 768 pretty easy. And, and in fact, a little bit above that. Uh, no, it's, I'm sorry, it's 16 megs of memory. Banshee had eight, but then, um, Spectre was going to be their next generation. It was going to be a DirectX 8 part, and they had a Sage processor chip, so they had a multi-chip solution that they were working on, and Sage was going to be the hardware transformation and lighting. And uh, they were never able to get it out. As soon as they got Silicon back, like a week later, yeah, that's when they, they started going into bankruptcy. But the, the second thing that really killed them was they tried to become ATI at the time. Mm-hmm. A time when ATI was trying not to become, <laughs> to be ATI anymore. Um, the, the people in the head at, at, in charge of 3DFX thought that the future was going to be vertical integration, that mm. you had to have your own, you know, board maker, you'd sell your own boards, you'd handle all the supply chain, everything. And when that happened with Voodoo 3, yeah, suddenly memory prices went sky high. Mm-hmm. And so instead of being just a chip maker who, you know, provides chips to your partners, and then the partners have to deal with all the, the board production, yep. supply production, the uh, support, and the memory prices just killed 3DFX uh, because they couldn't offer, they, there was not enough buffer in their mm-hmm. pricing. And so they spent all this money to acquire STB, and they had a big production plant down in Mexico. And uh, next thing you know, I mean, they they can't sell enough Voodoo 3 cards. I mean, that was still a very popular card, and it kept them afloat. And uh, the Voodoo 4 and 5, the VSA 100s were also six to eight months late from what they should have been. And so uh, NVIDIA had a pretty significant jump with the GeForce 2. And uh, they had, again, transformation and lighting while 3DFX had the T-buffer and, you know, really good uh, anti-aliasing quality. And so you had some different features there that you could lean upon. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, 3DFX just was much smoother experience, even though it was slower. Right, and we that. didn't know anything about microstutter and, you know, 95 percentile range yeah. of frame rates and 99 percent. I mean, that was all stuff that was that was done later on mm-hmm. with, you know, Scott Wasson and Ryan and... And a lot of these guys. But. And if I may say, when it benefited NVIDIA to point it out, like once NVIDIA was doing very well with their percentiles and their latency between frames, that's when I remember in the early GCN days, that's when they brought it up, you know, yeah. and, and it's you'd wonder what would have happened if 3D effects, you know, y- you can say no one knew about it, but. If it was better, 3D you could feel effects, it. You, you could feel it. You knew that exactly. it was a chunkier, even though the frame rates were higher. On the NVIDIA part, it just didn't feel as good. And, and again, we had we had no real ways of, of measuring it mm-hmm. back at the time. A lot smarter people than me eventually got around to doing that. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, really interesting. And you could kind of see NVIDIA improve after they had swallowed up 3D effects. Right. Then they started to kind of focus on latency, presentation, and all of that stuff. But wouldn't you say that half of the issue is it? it's really the impetus is on 3D effects to tell people to make the measure? Because I remember when NVIDIA had 
Because uh, they were comparing HD 7000 series in like 2013 to their Kepler, and they're like, yeah, their crossfire gets higher frame rates, but look at the frame times of SLI. And NVIDIA, I remember, provided two benchmarking channels and websites, software to measure it. Like NVIDIA's yeah. like, not only are we sure we're better, we're going to make it easy for you to prove we're right. 3DFX yeah. never did that. They never really... It's, you know, so I, I think that some of the blame just has to be on, you know, they should have t- been telling people a lot louder. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what you're, you're talking about 60 frames per second was, you know, not until you reached mm-hmm. Voodoo 2. Uh, Voodoo graphics at 640 by 480 was, was going to be a 30 frames per second type yep. thing. And when you're dealing with that little about, uh, I mean, you're, you're going to be dropping down to 22 to 25 frames. And especially if you're playing any kind of multiplayer, uh, Quake 2 multiplayer was extremely popular at that time. And yeah, I mean, you just had to deal with running it at 20 <laughs> frames per second and things are really hot and heavy. And, and, uh, that's just, that's just the way it was. And so it was not as big of a deal sure. as compared to now we're 60 plus frames per second mm-hmm. and you're smooth, smooth, smooth. And then it chunks down to 30, 25, and then back up. And that's really, really, it, I mean, it judders. It, 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 it hammers your senses a bit. Um, while back when it was sub 30 frames per second all the time, yeah, you didn't really notice it because your, 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 your entire experience was, was crappy anyway. Yeah. Compared but to it looked modern better. standards. Yeah. It looked better than 320 by 240 or whatever that, that resolution was. Yeah. And I mean, like some old games, I mean, the frame rates were like, 16 frames. I mean, let's be honest, you know, I guess moving forward then though, I'm not even really sure how to ask this next question, but I kind of want to transition into when did things start to feel different from that previous era? You know, the era where, and I've looked this up, I've done videos talking about this, where building a PC wasn't like, what motherboard, what CPU, what GPU, what RAM, what SSD, and I'm done. It was like, there were like 20 different components of like different network cards and things you needed. Mm-hmm. And then you, it would all be like five grand, two to $5,000. <laughs> like, when did things yeah. start feeling closer to now? Would you say it was kind of like around, I don't know, because I, I, I always think I the HD... I would say more around 2002, 2003. Uh, because that's when AMD came out with the Athlon 64, and we knew that was coming. The Athlon XP stuff was very inexpensive. Um, that was the end of kind of the, the Pentium 2s and uh, and Pentium 3s before we went to the Pentium 4. And so you could actually get a lot of different parts that were far less expensive and still make a really uh, pretty good gaming machine. But yeah, it was it was around that time, and uh, you had a wide variety still of mm-hmm. uh, graphics cards that you could use. You could still, you know, pick up a, a Voodoo Five for not a whole lot of money because they're all on fire sale. Uh, you know, GeForce Two, GeForce Threes, they were all very uh, common. Uh, ATI finally had some uh, pretty decent stuff: the Rage One Twenty Eight and Rage One Twenty Eight Pro, and uh, above when they finally went to the Radeons. And so you had plenty of options mm-hmm. of uh, stuff to buy. Uh, there was starting to be more integration in motherboards. And so you'd still be able to buy a you know, $100, $120 motherboard, but you'd get basic sound and you'd get yes. some basic networking uh, uh, connectivity there as compared to previously when you had to look at, well, do I want a 56K modem on there? And then I have to have another network because you know I'm running a small network in my house, but we don't have broadband yet, so I still need that 56K modem. And plus a sound card, 
and a graphics card. And uh, yeah, it was it was a much more expensive thing, and you had to cobble it all together yourself. And you had to make sure that your motherboard had enough PCI slots. And not only that, but when the advent of AGP and PCI and you had ISAL at the same time, uh, you often didn't have full access to all your PCI slots. They had, like they, The number one PCI slot shared an IRQ with the AGP. Mm-hmm. Um, or something like that. I mean, it's, it's again, this is 20 years ago when, yeah. when I dealt with a lot of these issues that, uh, you, you just, you, you would never populate the first PCI slot because things would get wonky. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, just really kind of interesting. And then there are people who had like six PCI slots, but again, you had to be careful which ones you did because there was shared resources from a couple of those PCI slots. So it was a mess. Um, it was a lot of marketing, uh, pushing engineering to where it really shouldn't have ever gone. But it's, you know, it's it's where we were at and, and kind of the name of the game. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, you know, going back then, that's really where PC gaming started to become much more mainstream, though, right? Because you could, correct me if I'm wrong at that point, though, that's when you really could build a decent, you know, especially like around 2004, 2005, a decent mid-range gaming per PC for under two grand and actually play the latest games. Although, am I wrong? Uh, when I look around back then, it still feels like a lot of gaming PCs you would build around then were just literally so you could play the latest games. It wasn't expected that if you had an old one, you could even attempt to play the newest ones, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, DX7 was a jump up from DX6. And then, uh, and that introduced uh, transformation and lighting. And DX9 eight, of course, was integer based uh, shading. Uh, DX9 didn't come out until a couple years later when they finally went to floating point. You know, it, it's it's really hard to put your finger on where things really changed. But stuff that really stands out mm-hmm. was, of course, Quake was big, Civilization one was big, and Diablo. Mm-hmm. These these were these were the heavy hitters of that time that that people played a lot of, and I mean they really drove PC gaming uh, kind of new heights. And then then you had some other you know basic shooters that went out. Uh, Microsoft Flight Sim was still you know mm-hmm. being developed, and um, you know those are the games. And Quake Two when it came out uh, was just a such a massive jump, uh, especially in multiplayer, and then Unreal. But you have this whole series of then titles that go through, you know, like uh, uh, Counter Strike. The original Counter Strike right. was, you know, a Half Life mod, uh, and it was released in, I think, ninety nine. And um, these multiplayer experiences really drove PC gaming to new heights. And so it's it's really hard to see, you know, what eras were which because it's it's all again it's it's kind of like this analog slope of of developers titles. And really interesting titles. And again, you know, we had Half Life that that you know reimagined the first person shooter, and and it was you know we'd never seen anything like that. And it had you know yeah. physics, and and you could break apart boxes and move stuff. And, yeah, Half Life and Half Life Two for me are just like these yeah. insane. Yeah. They just weren't on consoles. The consoles couldn't bother to run them, and what they were doing was so hilariously better than what was before. It's yeah. very rare to see games like that at all anymore, to yeah. be honest. And so, I mean, all these things pushed the others and we had an improvements in in process technology and we had improvements in design we had 
you know, massive improvements in the software they actually use to design yeah. the stuff, the EDA software, and uh, you know, being able to to whip out uh, PCBs in record time and mm-hmm. be able to you know make sure all the traces are the correct uh, length and and uh, to get you know good memory signals and and all of that. I mean, we had just this massive growth in between ninety five and two thousand five in all of these parts. And, uh, I mean, it just led to an explosion, really, in PC gaming, probably, yeah, 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. 2004, when, you know, Doom 3 came out, uh, Half-Life 2, mm-hmm. uh, that, that just pushed it all to a whole nother level. And Far Cry. Far Cry was yep. an amazing Which is really title. a precursor to Crisis, if we're being honest. It's nothing oh, like yeah. the current Far Cry's. Yeah, no, no. It's, uh, it, was, it was a fantastic game. It was one of the first sandbox shooter games that uh, was ever out. Everything else was kind of on rails. Half-Life 2 was, you're still essentially on rails. But Mm -hmm. with Far Cry, you had these giant islands that you would run around and do whatever you wanted to do. And so that was the introduction of of a real sandbox-type shooter that uh, nobody had ever done before. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating because you could do really interesting things in there with their physics engine that you just had never seen before. Yeah, and I think I'll skip ahead a little bit in some of our discussion points then, because I just feel like everything from 2000 to 2010 was just more standardization, more consolidation, more honestly getting cheaper. I mean, I have to always give a shout out to things like the HD4870 because I just thought it was hilarious. Like it, NVIDIA releases this one card, and then AMD releases something half the size, almost the same performance, half the price, and starts taking market share. But it was really that card and around and where the Apex happened, kind of after that, it was really just a ton of NVIDIA and Intel domination, really, from like 2000, I don't know, you would say for sure 2014 Intel 20, Intel Zen 1. I mean, I don't know how much you want to say about that because i'm not even sure where we would start like you say it's all just kind of a trend line but like what was it like covering pc gaming in this intel dominated era at the very least it's a little bit of a toss-up because in 2008 you had uh the phenom one was out and then another year and a half later the phenom two came out and when the good lord again that's it's Stinking thirteen years ago. I know, right? I can't remember anything. Uh, my brain is is getting old. But uh, the Phenom Two was very competitive. It was. with the Intel products at the time. They ran a little bit faster. So, like you know, you you were at three gigahertz while Intel was at two point seven something, and the Intel was slightly faster. But AMD was competitive, and it was price competitive, and it would, didn't run all that much hotter than uh, what Intel had, but it was a much better product. And so AMD was pretty competitive with the Phenom 2 X4 up to the, uh, what, the 1060 X6? Or the 1090 uh, the, the Phenom 2 X6, yeah, there was like an 1100, yeah. I thought. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, the 1090T I- and the 1100T, which they were really, really, really good products, and they were faster than the bulldozer yeah. that, you know, was was released afterwards. And so, you know, up until the release of Bulldozer, AMD was able to stay in. At least keep up. Yeah. Yeah, with gaming. I mean, they, they didn't have a, a, a better product, but they had a good product. And again, that, that uh, Phenom 2, is it the 920? 
I mean, it was a it was a fantastic chip. All of uh, you know, time. it just kind of depended on the month which one was cheaper. I mean, uh, of yeah. course, nine twenty was at first cheaper, but then there'd be some times where like the nine forty was overproduced, and all of a sudden you can get it for the same price as a nine twenty. The entire yeah. Phenom two nine hundred series, I feel like, is undercovered in that because people do tend to just be like, oh well, Intel made the core series and then it was game over. But there were a couple years like two thousand ten eleven where AMD had Phenom two, and all of a sudden they were right up there in gaming once again. There was that. Yeah, and their Opterons were still selling okay mm-hmm. at that time. Uh because they they were able to, you know, do do multi chip uh on 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 substrates. So you could get these, you know, higher core uh level of Opterons and, and they were still okay. They weren't as good as is what Intel was offering with Xeons, but they were still okay. And uh but yeah it was it was once a bulldozer hit that AMD Struggled mightily uh, from there until until Zen One uh, really got them back up to speed. Yeah, and I mean, I really feel like that competition, especially with lowering price, like ever decreasing prices, and you had Phenom Two against Nehalem, and then you also had things like the HD Five Thousand series. I mean, you had mid range cards for under two hundred bucks. Yeah, well, when the Five Thousand series came out, uh, the fifty. So the 5800 XT? 5870. The HD 5870, 5870 right. yeah. Uh, that, was, that was the best DX10 card out there, period. Or was it DX11? No, it was DX11. I believe they actually... Yeah. It's hard for me to remember here. You know what, let me They're look. the first. They were the first. Because I, I think it's DX, 11. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, they had the best product out there uh, because that was the GTX 480 that came out. I've got one of those sitting behind me, and I think it's still hot. Uh, from the last time I used it years ago. Um, those things were burners. They couldn't produce enough. There was uh, really interesting manufacturing issues mm-hmm. with the GTX 40, but the 50, uh, 5870, you could get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's one gig frame buffer and uh, good DX11 performance across the board. And the image quality was was perfectly fine. And it was, uh, it was a fantastic part. And, I mean, they rode that one pretty hard and even the 6000 series like the 6970 and the 6990 mm-hmm. they were again competitive with the GTX 580s mm-hmm. um and the 5000 series it was just after that that AMD really fell off with uh with graphics well you know <sighs> Honestly, the 7000 series took the crown again and then and pretty much held on to it. You know, then there was the Nvidia Titan, but then AMD, I would argue, beat the Titan with the 290X, but it didn't take any market share. You know, Nvidia kept coming out with things. They'd have PhysX and they. Yeah, Hawaii was really one of their last big big ones. It was. Yeah. And I, and all this time, things were, I just want to put things in perspective for people. Like, this is an example I bring up. My 7970 was the strongest card on the market, and then I could overclock it by 35%. So I, I just want to put that in perspective. Imagine being able to get the strongest card, and I did. I actually traded two 6950s in like 20 bucks or something for a 7970. And so for around $400, I got the flagship, and then I overclocked it to the performance of an almost next-gen flagship. The performance was insane, and it was very, very, very cheap. You know, it's so wildly different than where we are now. But to be fair... Things weren't always like that. I think there might be some level of understanding that needs to be had that 
we keep comparing everything we have now to what we had 10 years ago. And I, uh, yeah, but think of where things were 10 years before that. You know, things yeah. were actually worse, arguably. Well, and I, you know, and I'd emailed you about it when the Pentium 2 266 yeah. was released, and they released it four or five months in advance of when they had originally planned to because AMD was coming out with the K6. And the K6 was rumored to have so much better performance than the Pentium MMX, uh, even though you know, it ran slower in clock speed, it, it still outperformed. And so it was it was a higher end. It was a, a Pentium Pro competitor, uh, but faster, especially because mm-hmm. it ran at 233 megahertz. And it was just, you know, it, it had so much better integer performance than the original Pentium or the Pentium MMX that Intel brought out the Pentium 2s far sooner because, uh, you know, just a little side note, when they released the Pentium to 266, that was a $1,500 CPU just by itself. Mm-hmm. That That's, I mean, it, it quickly, a couple of months after, went down to 1000 bucks. But it was $1,500 when it came out. And the motherboard was minimum of $300. And it was based on the old 440FX chipset, the older Pentium Pro. And so you didn't have access to SD RAM. There was no AGP. All that stuff would come with the 440LX chipset, which... They were waiting on the development of that before they were going to release the Pentium 2. But AMD caused them to change because they were going to take the performance crown with the K6 against the Pentium MMX 200, which was the max at the time for that one. Eventually, they went with a 233. But still, AMD was, was um, they had a product and it was going to be on a Socket 7 architecture, which is what the Pentium MMX ran on. And uh, there was all kinds of motherboards ready and available for eighty to a hundred dollars that uh, you know were pretty good at the time. But yeah, it was it was a lot of money to get into um, these Pentium twos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pentium two two thirty three was still an eight hundred and some odd dollar chip by itself. And that's again not even counting motherboard, and it's a crappy motherboard at that because <laughs> I think it it ran on EDO or fast page RAM, it wasn't even SG RAM at the time, and you had to put them in in uh, it was Sims, you had to put them in in pairs, or else it wouldn't work. You know, looking back at this too, I, I just think you know the the PC gaming renaissance you know started when you could just build these budget builds for like four hundred bucks that were wildly mm-hmm. stronger than the consoles. Um, but I always think people forget that the reference point to like the Xbox 360 and PS3, those eventually were like seven, eight year old consoles. That generation went on forever. So it was easy to beat them also, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. comparatively first to now. year it was a little tougher to do that. But yep. after that, it was, it was very quickly. Um, yeah, they, they aged quickly, but again, uh, software development, they were so much far further ahead in working with, uh, developers, Mm-hmm. On how to you know extract every ounce of, of performance out of the PS3 and the uh, the Xbox 360 that you really had some pretty interesting titles that they did some neat tricks with to uh, to get them as look as as good as they did with the hardware that they were with really half a gig of RAM around yeah yeah <laughs> I, I mean and you would say looking back on it that was kind of the first console generation where you even remotely compared console performance to top-end PCs at all, right? Before that, consoles were just cheaper but weaker. The original Xbox One was essentially a GeForce uh, You 4. mean Xbox? Yeah, the original Xbox. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a Celeron with a uh, essentially a GeForce 4. 
mm-hmm. as uh, kind of the 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 chipset in there, and uh, they did interesting things with how it addressed RAM. Um, and you had PC style graphics, in fact, a little bit better in ways, yeah, uh, because of of again uh, the the programming environment that you're in and how close to the metal you can get with with the Xbox. Um, that was really the the first big one, and. That was when uh, Sony came out with the PS2, and they they made a whole lot of noise about the uh, um, the cell processor. Oh, and the, yeah, the cell processor in PS3. Yeah, cell processor with the motion engine, and then uh, you know people were talking. This was a supercomputer on a chip, and then you <laughs> look at the output of the PS2 versus an Xbox, and it's like there's no comparison. The Xbox looks so much better with what it can do because it's this, you know, it's essentially a GeForce 4 mm-hmm. in there, while the PS2 is this really complex... They're both complex, though, and, you know, um, the, I mean, the well, in effect, actually, the PS2 is pretty powerful. It just almost wasn't a graphics <laughs> machine, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was not good at, uh, at graphics. Compared to PCs at the time, and I just... Again, I'm just the point I'm trying to make though, bringing that up is it's like things just were why, like, because I, I think so many people just expect to be able to have a gaming PC that crushes the consoles and like that's how it's always been. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, used to be stronger, but they also used to cost 10, 20 times as much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at a thousand bucks for CPU, and I mean, yeah, we still pay 700 for, you know, the, Top end AMD, uh, you can still get a, a 3060X and a 5600X for under $300. And, and those are, you know, six core, 12 thread, uh, super gaming performing chips. And of course, you know, if you could actually buy a GPU at MSRP, then you could, you could slap together something great for a thousand bucks. But, uh, yeah, it was nice about five years ago when there was not a glut. Of uh, not a glut, but but a rather a dearth of uh, GPUs, where you could get a reasonable processor. You can get, you know, the 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 pile driver. Uh, what was the model number of that one? Oh, I know my the eighty three eighty three fifty was. You could get one of those three prices, one hundred fifty bucks or less, and it's a four core, eight thread, reasonable gaming performance, and uh, you know, a graphics card at the time. You can get you know a two eighty X. From um, from AMD and its partners for again less than three hundred dollars, and you had you know a pretty beefy gaming system that could handle anything. You know, I actually want to posit a theory here because it's something I've been thinking about. Sure. People always talk about Moore's law and how it made things cheaper, and it's like, well, mm, back then, you know, before two thousand, having Moore's law around certainly made performance go up. And for the same performance, things got cheaper, but it was always really expensive to get into it, right? And then Moore's Law kind of died, and then it seems like right around this era we're talking about when Moore's Law was slowing down, things got cheaper when Moore's Law was slowing down, actually. Because ultimately, I think what happened was in the 90s, you had people going, well, you know, things are getting cheaper for the same performance at a rapid pace. So I'm going to spend four grand for a PC because it's 10 times better than my PC from three years ago. So, oh, well, it's just how things work out. And then you got to like late 2000s and early in like, you know, 2012 era where things, you know, graphics cards were only like 50% stronger every two and a half, like every few years. Like, 
And but yeah. because they weren't as much stronger as people expected, they couldn't raise prices, and so things just got dirt cheap. I don't. Is that a crazy thing? Notion that Moore's law made things cheaper over time for a while, but right when it kind of fell apart and we stagnated on twenty-eight nanometer for a very long time, that's actually when things got the cheapest. But also performance didn't raise. Yeah, I, you, know, you know. Yeah, I, th- I think that you've you've got a good point there. I mean, part of that is is just going to be the manufacturing ability of these uh, companies. That you know, twenty eight nanometer uh, became you know the de facto process node, and it was highly mm-hmm. optimized, and you could do some things to really increase yield. And so you weren't dumping millions into development of a process that again was was already mature. Uh, they were still dumping millions into next generation stuff, and of course that's that's going to cost stuff to be more expensive. But if you're just going by per wafer prices, then yeah, when you when you were you know, twenty nanometers was was very mature, and you could get you know wafers for half the price uh, of that same process from three mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, and so yeah, your 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 per die, good die is is going to be a cheaper thing just because. The wafers are cheaper, the process technology is mature, and your yields are going to be better. So instead of having a, a yield rate yep. of 50%, and you can recover some of those defective dyes, I mean, you're looking at 85 to 90%, and you can recover you know, another significant portion of uh, the defects. So, yeah, you're, you're just making it cheaper. You have because to. Because it's so mature, and it was mature for a long time, and they were still using it. They, they still use it. Yeah, it's just funny to think about, you know, like how Moore's Law supposedly said things will get cheaper over time as performance increases. And it's like they kind of did for the same performance, but then it almost feels like you could chart the entry price point of a gaming PC with the slowing of Moore's Law that arguably it actually made it cheaper because it was slowing until it stalled. And now we have radically new technology like 3D stacking chiplets. You know, things are getting very interesting again. But then all of a sudden, it seems like things are going to get very expensive again as performance goes back up. I don't know. I I guess this is where we kind of get into that discussion. What do you think about that, that things might start getting more expensive again, because the only way to scale Moore's Law now, for being honest, is to spend $100 billion on, like, a 5 nanometer fab, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, chip stacking is is going to be a big deal. Um, what AMD is going to be doing at the end of this year with the uh, the latest Ryzen processors, with that, you know, built-in, you know, uh, stackable uh, memory, uh, that's going to be a big deal to to get that there. But I also wonder, I mean, if we look at, at the margins that NVIDIA, Intel, and AMD are making now, right now AMD is is really mm-hmm. at the high end of where oh, they've yeah. ever been in terms of margin. And I think part of that is the bean counters are like, hey, you know what? People are willing to pay this. So there's no reason why we should charge less. And our competitors certainly aren't. And so, yeah, you can buy a 6900 XT for $1,900 off yeah. Amazon, even though its MSRP is is half of that. Uh, same thing with the 6800 XT. That's a $1,600 product for, it's supposed to be $699 or less, $649. Yeah, I, I think it was $649. Exactly. You forget, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just it's just stupid because, you know, AMD's making money. All the partners are making money. Everybody's making money. And we're kind of getting screwed but are are we not just screwing ourselves? Because they would not do it if people didn't buy it. 
Yeah, but who's buying it? I mean, uh, there's there's still a significant number of people who are are doing mining. I mean, it's not you know it's not fifty percent, but it's you know it's a good thirty percent probably. So uh, yeah, I, I I think part of it is not so much the manufacturing. It's there is such demand though, and and mining has made it more complex. But there's such demand that they just can't. They can't produce enough wafers. Uh, there's there's not enough manufacturing capacity in the world at these you know five nanometers, seven nanometers, you know eight nanometers. The stuff that that they're really aiming at for the high performance computing and the stuff that we want as gamers, they just can't make enough yeah. chips. And so they're making sure that their margins are nice and fat, that they can invest that money in uh, you know possibly buying out more competitors' <laughs> yeah. wafers in the future, like Intel has done. Um, it's just how the economics of this work, and it's the over the overwhelming demand for these graphics cards. And you know, I think people bring up mining. I would argue actually a little too often. You know, I've seen a lot of people that are building since Vega. I remember when Vega Frontier came out, there were some people doing rendering for like indie movies, and they were like, "Hey, I can get mm-hmm. five Vegas and put them with these risers and render a movie now faster than I could have with." a mainframe <laughs> 10 years ago. Like, I think graphics cards just in general are far more useful than they used to be, just in general. Yeah, and let me give you an example. I work for uh, a environmental statistics firm, and we started in the last three years doing machine learning on uh, a lot of these things. So, like, for one example, uh, we're, we're doing a program called on the Arctic Turn, and they send drones out and they record up and down these mm-hmm. beaches. And then instead of having some intern sit there and try to find out what is a rock, what mm-hmm. is a turn, and I mean, just waste hours and hours and hours of doing that, not meaningful, but a menial type job that they're going to make mistakes because these videos are hours long and you're yeah. human beings. I mean, you're, you're not built to... St- keep that kind of focus and you're going to make mistakes. And so they had machine learning, you know, they'd go through there and then identify manually, you know, what is a turn nest and what is a rock and whatever, whatever else is out there. And they, you know, got these, you know, these machine learning up to like 95, 96% accuracy, which is 40% more accurate than than a human being, you know, being paid. And so we use, you know, we get top of the line GPUs, uh, except we don't get into the Titans and and uh, and their quadros, but we have a, a handful of thirty nineties that all we do is is machine mm-hmm. learning type stuff. And uh, because of statistics, uh, we do a lot of matrices as well. Which of course these these GPUs are amazing at matrix uh, type math. And so yeah, that's that's you've got medium sized businesses that are. Again, buying up a lot of these GPUs as well, because you can actually get work out of them rather than just gaming. And I think when you look at the gaming as well, uh, you know, finally, the next-gen consoles have not just SSDs, but good SSDs in them. Uh, Maybe they skimped on RAM a little bit, I would argue. But, and then a decent amount of compute performance. Uh, You almost wonder uh, how much of the 
impetus is needed for that much more performance for gaming anyways which look i want i like i have a 4k 120 or it's monitor i'm using to, uh, to talk to you right now i like it i like mm-hmm. 4k 120 i actually do but it, it's just hard for me to like make the argument that oh this is meant for gamers when it's like sounds like what you're doing with those 3090s is a lot more important to me <laughs> than playing a game i don't know yeah and i mean a lot of uh, there's a lot of professional applications which can use the power of mm-hmm. a 3090 and even a 3080, even though you're a little bit more RAM constra- uh, memory constrained, uh, you can still do, you know, meaningful work on it if you adjust your, uh, adjust your application. So yeah, it's, it's another, another aspect of graphics that, uh, you know, it's something that Jensen and the gang have been pushing as more general purpose, you know, GP, GPU, it, it really now is. I mean, we're well past the tipping point where, you know, companies, mid, small, mid, and large scale companies are buying these cards to do actual industrial type work. Yeah. Gosh, Reese, why does Windows 10 Professional have to be so expensive? Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great Windows and gaming keys you need at cdkeyoffers.com. That includes Steam, Origin, Uplay, PlayStation, PC, and many other keys, including Windows, Microsoft Word, and Professional. Use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all of these fancy Windows keys and dashing for 3% off everything on the website. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. And so I start, I kind of want to move into, though, more of like, the evolution of performance for gaming, though, here with Sarcastro, who writes in, it's a pretty funny name. Hello, Tom and Josh. Josh, aside from the cool factor and the just because we can do it aspect, will there be a benefit or use in gaming for ray tracing beyond the ambient environment and immersion for such expensive parlor tricks? If some games and scenes are seemingly more photoreal through raw rasterization than a Polaroid ever was, is there any benefit to RT cores taking up die space and compute ability? Are shaders and TMU cache of more use? PS, PC, I've been watching and listening and following PC Gamer since the PC Limited 38616 VGA forever. And, And this kind of gets us into the discussion of like when Turing was released, what you thought of that, if you think it's an efficient use of GPU space for ray tracing. I mean, what are your views on this? You know, uh, uh, people have been touting ray tracing as the end all mm-hmm. be all. And, but we've got 30 years of rasterization and good tricks and things that we have done that I think that, that ray tracing, I don't know if we'll ever get to pure ray tracing like they do with, you know, mm-hmm. ILM and those guys where they have these massive servers. And it's going to be absolutely ultra realistic, and uh, it's going to take ages to do any kind of frame. I mean, it's it's not now ages; it's far less. But still, um, you know, doing doing ray tracing in 120 frames per second is is still not extremely possible. And and so, 
we're going to continue along the line of of using rasterization but on top of that is going to be more ray tracing type stuff and i don't think we're going to get away from you know a, a raster area anytime soon and i don't think that you know functionally there's aspects of rasterization that's just mm -hmm. good enough and it's well understood enough and the way that we handle lighting and now that we've got another tool with ray tracing on there um it's going to make it even more you know realistic in how things are reflected and pretty much everywhere and, and how light behaves and and you've got these you know physics-based models that they utilize for ray tracing that makes things mm -hmm. more realistic but is realistic better if you can't even tell it's more realistic, right? Because, like, I, I like that you said good enough, because I was thinking this the other day. I was playing Chivalry 2, and there's armor on these soldiers in this online multiplayer um, medieval game. And the armor looks pretty dang good, and it shows light kind of reflections, as far as I can tell, of enemies that are near me shining on, like, the plates of armor. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure it's just reflecting the shadows, because it requires very little to just reflect the general shape of a human in that armor than to mm -hmm. actually accurately ray trace a human in that armor. And if we're being fair, real armor is pretty dull. So in real life, you yeah. probably wouldn't make out much more than the blob of a person in the armor. You know, so should yeah. we waste our time ray tracing if it cuts the frame rate down to a third? Again, it's going to depend on the application. Um, now, let's let's take a Have you done the Quake 2 ray trace? I, I've RTX? seen it. I've not played it, you know. You, you sometimes you should, you know, go through the original Quake 2, do, a, you know, an hour worth, and then get the RTX and then try it out. And you will be amazed by the very, very subtle differences that, that sometimes just catch you unaware. You turn a corner and the light is shining on something or it's reflecting off another thing or, and just the quality of light. Cause that was, you know, the one thing that really, you know, Half-Life 2 yes. did really well is the quality <laughs> of lighting was really, really, yeah. really good. Yeah. And that's the kind of jump you see from like, you know, Doom 3 to Half-Life 2, where Doom 3 had these hard shadows and everything was really kind of strangely blocky, uh, but everything was, you know, at least kind of, you know, it's how light works. But then you got Half-Life 2, which you just had this, you know, kind of soft lighting and, and everything looked much more natural. And this is the same thing that you're going to get when you actually try ray tracing that has been done very, very well. And I think the Quake 2 RTX has been done extremely well because you go into environments and it's like, okay, the textures aren't great, but there's just something about this that I just can't put my finger on. And, it, and it's blowing my mind because it just looks so good, even though it's a 20 plus year old title and i mean yeah they've done some improvements on textures and models and and that with the rtx but it really is the quality of lighting is a step above anything else that i've really experienced and i mean with with half-life 2 all mm -hmm. of their light maps and stuff were were pre-rendered and um so it wasn't really ray tracing there and again because it was pre-rendered and and kind of baked in you couldn't get a lot of interaction in terms of lighting with what you were doing. Uh, but that's not the case with, with this like fully path traced Quake 2. Um, 
if you get the chance, take your time and and go and and try it out and play it. And really, you'll you'll see a difference. You can't always put your finger on it, but it's like there is something really interesting here in quality wise, uh, because you know lighting is everything to us humans, and uh, it, it and when you're doing it accurately, it has a real effect on on how you experience this title. Now, things like Battlefield Five and that, I mean, they have some ray tracing, you know, kind of put on there and it's a little kind of glitchy. And then again, you're hitting performance stuff. You know, it's it's not a great experience, but again, try Quake 2 RTX. It's it's fascinating when you wander around and you go underwater and you go into these dark places and you and you like, you know, throw one of these light torches out there and you see how it interacts in the water and and how everything kind of sparkles outside. It's 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 really fascinating. It's um, it's an experience that, you know, if 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 you showed me this back in 1997, I mean, it totally blown my mind. And in 2021, again, you you fire that up and you start looking around at a lot of these just interesting, subtle lighting things. And it, and it, and it, again, it, it's, it's amazing to me. So again, I, long story short, we're not getting away from raster anytime soon. We're not going into, um, you know, fully path trace stuff for everything. I mean, there's just so many really good memory and performance tricks and rasterization that you can still add RTX onto and ray tracing that it's worth it. I think we're still about another generation away before getting much better, um, visualization in 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 titles then uh but but once you hit that i i think it's it's just going to be standard and so i think rtx and ray chasing is is worth it so i do want to play a devil's advocate here though on that quake 2 thing i think it's easy to be impressed by it when it's such an old game like and i while you were talking i was double checking something so like quake 2 rtx like this is a game in 4K where you get like 30 frames with a 2080 Ti. So, do I think Quake Two looks cooler with ray tracing? <laughs> yes. Do I think it looks better than Death Stranding or Red Dead Redemption Two? No. And we can spend these resources on yeah. different things. It's cool that the lighting looks good, but you have like Spyro fire popping out of the ground when you could have realistic fire tons of animals on screen, fur effects in Red Dead Redemption, you know, that type of stuff. So that, that that's my counter-argument, though, is I just feel like half of the time, like Minecraft, I think Minecraft with ray tracing looks really cool. In some ways, more impressive to me, just because it really adds to a game that isn't as old and is randomly generated, so would never be able to have the pre-baked lighting as often. But at, at the same mm-hmm. time, it's like, still, though, it feels like most of the time we're talking about games that already didn't look impressive graphically. And so if they don't, yeah. you could have made Quake... You know what I bet you could do is remake Quake 2 with rasterization and make it look a hell of a lot better than Quake 2 RTX. <laughs> but that's all art. That's that's just taking your time to do the art in the game. Better models, better mm-hmm. textures, better pre-baked lighting. I mean, all of those things are... You can you can do that with anything, but uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't think we've really seen the the ray tracing killer app. Yeah, and uh, and again, we're we're just scratching the surface in terms of what our hardware can do, you know, effectively. And again, 
with DLSS at least with Quake Two or TX, you can yeah, get up to sure. ninety to hundred frames per second. But yeah, it's it's I know exactly I know exactly what you what you mean. And uh, for most people, it is really a non-factor. Mm-hmm. And neither should it be because again, it's so expensive for what limited use we get out of it so well far. i think where ray tracing can really take over which it just up until now has not been this let's be clear you know jensen wayne comes out and it's just like it just makes everything easier it just works it's like yeah i don't know i played mm-hmm. battlefield 5 it doesn't seem like it just works to me it seems like they had to bolt on another graphical effect and it took more workout you know man hours to add it wasn't just yeah. making things easier but there's this game that's in early access right now arcade again and they used FSR with ray tracing. And when they did that, they said, hey, we have puddles in 4K that reflect things realistically. We're an indie dev. We don't have time to pre-bake lighting for every little object. And now that we have FSR or DLSS, we can actually just add lighting effects that we we just straight up couldn't do before. That That's kind of where I see yeah. ray tracing going, that it's still going to be rasterization for most things. But at least indie devs, when they combine it with uh, FSR, can now have effects they just couldn't have before. And this will allow indie games to, for sure, not look as good as the AAA games that are out there, but at least attempt to look like a modern 3D shooter or something um, with effects mm-hmm. that they just couldn't even fathom trying to do before yeah yeah timo h writes in he says currently there's talk of how expensive pc equipment is and it will probably get more expensive i remember top of the line king of the generation amd ati gpus costing 500 dollars in 2008 but as a kid i remember even for poor pc or 3d gpu it cost more than a kidney 2000 4000 or more for multimedia pentiums with poor windows 95 and software on top of that Nothing was free back then. How much is hardware actually improving from an end-user perspective? I'm aware there are lab metrics showing increases in transistors and teraflops, but are some of these measurable increases simply measurable increases and doing nothing more for many end-users? It's a pretty good question. You know, you could argue that from like 2012 in terms of CPUs, that's we've we've really only haven't improved overall performance, they've just become much more mm-hmm. wider. So my wife is running a i7-3770K from 2012, and it still works perfectly fine for everything that she does. In fact, a friend of mine comes over and plays games every once in a while. It does perfectly fine with the games that he has. Um, in terms of 3D graphics, we're light years ahead of what we were in 2012 with what we were able to do and, and the resolutions and the rates. And, and so, yeah, they were expensive back in the mid nineties, but there was some interesting jumps. And especially after the K six two or the K six and the K six two came out that we finally had reasonably powered budget computers that you can get for about 1200 bucks. And that included a very basic 3D card. So I'm not talking S3 basic, but, you know, Voodoo graphics type performance. Uh, SIS had a chipset. Intel had the i740. Um, there were a couple of other. Cirrus Logic, I think, had something. I mean, these, th- these uh, didn't have great software support. But, you know, ATI had a handful of, of cards that were all inexpensive. I mean, $150 at one point was what you would be able to buy 
a you know a Riva mm. TNT or a uh, Rage Pro 128 or a Voodoo 3. I mean that was the um, top amount you were looking at. 150 bucks was was the top. But then you know GeForce 2 came out and it was 225 bucks, and Voodoo 5 came out and was 199 dollars or something like that. Um, and especially GeForce 3 then is when you started to get into the $300 to $500 range for graphics cards. And I remember once uh, BFG released a, I'm thinking it was a 512 meg. Ooh. <laughs> uh, oh, GeForce half a gigabyte. 6800, yeah, 6800 XT for 1000 bucks, And that was the most expensive 3D graphics card mm-hmm. that you could buy. And now that's, and that was back in 2003, 2004. And I'll say that where we're going, I know that internally AMD is considering two grand for the top RDNA three chip. There can, Ooh. but it might double RDNA 2's performance again. So it's like, well, yeah, we're also increasing performance pretty rapidly again, though. I mean, all of this is yeah. to say, where do you see PC gaming going? And because, and and just to kind of frame the question, it's like. Before the year 2000, it was really like a true hobbyist realm. Like this was where you pay as much as a car for a PC, but it would do things you couldn't do before. And then it got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it got to the point where it was competing with consoles in price performance some years, which is just not how it used to be. Having said that, though, now that things are getting more expensive, we're also getting wildly more performance. But I think there's a key difference in that. Yeah, but the consoles aren't bad. They used to suck compared to the top-end gaming PC. Whereas now, hey, look, 3090 way stronger than what's in the PS5 or Xbox Series X. No arguments there. But it's not like 10 times stronger like it was, you know, back in the 90s where it was just hilariously stronger. Like, where do you see... Or in 2007. Right. Where do you see this going, right, uh, with PC gaming? Like, is it... What's going to happen to budget builds? What's going to happen to the standard PC gamer in this hobby, in your opinion? I don't know. I think for the next year, it's still going to be painful as a hobbyist. Uh, If you want to buy a new graphics card, your best bet is to find a pre-built that has the graphics card you want Mm -hmm. and get that. Because that's going to be the only way that you're going to be able to get a hold of one uh, reliably. And that you know, essentially MSRP, even though you have the overhead of paying ABS gaming or these mm-hmm. other guys, um, the money to put it all together and support it. And, and, you know, you're, you're not getting the, the, the storage you want. You may not get the processor you want, but you know, at least you can get a graphics card that way. And you're not going to get probably screwed in terms of money. And, uh, you know, all those kind of either come with a Ryzen 5,000 or 3000 series or, you know, a, a Core i7, i5, 10, and 11 series. Mm. Uh, so it's good enough, but you're going to have to get away from building your own. Or you get one of these kind of bare-bones systems that has a card, and then you throw in the SSDs that you want. Mm-hmm. Or you upgrade the memory. Or, you know, you're, you're going to have things that you can do just because, you know, unlike buying a Dell machine, which you can't really upgrade very well. <laughs> um, a lot of these, you know, pre-builds are, are kind of the way to go. But I think that probably by the end of September, we're going to see a little bit more availability of uh, retail graphics cards. It's already happening a little bit, right? I know NVIDIA is shipping more 360s right now and stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, but I mean, even Jensen saying, you know, we're we're not we're we've got backlogs until you know through twenty twenty two, and uh, I think AMD is sitting in the same place, and it's going to get better slowly over time. Yeah, but it's not going to be three years ago where if you wanted a twenty sixty or a twenty eighty Ti, you could just buy one mm-hmm. at either MSRP or slightly below. That's you know something's on sale. So that's uh, you know we're we're still a ways away from that. I mean, in terms of like probably after Christmas, you can get a good chance of buying whatever you want at around MSRP, but that's still six months away. Yeah, and I I'm going to be honest. I think there's two things going on with MSRP. The the first, I mean, it's it's a long story. I could do a whole podcast about it. I did a whole report on what was going on with like the MSRP of the original Ampere launch. The founders cards were crazy over near cards for reviewers and really intend to sell any of those founders cards there's like all this stuff going on but at the same time prices have gone up i mean ram prices have more than doubled components costs are up now they're not up as much as they want you to believe they are they're not up so much that it should cost two thousand freaking dollars i want to be very clear and i think some people are buying into their defense is a little too much it's like whoa 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 some of these cards like yeah system ram has not gone up as no. much as i expected it to i mean I, they were they were saying well you know stuff that's going to be 90 dollars today is going to be 150 bucks you know six months from now and it, it never has hit that it's been like you know a, a pair of 16 gig dims you know running at 3600 speed was 90 dollars you know back than and is now 115. So it is a price increase. And we didn't nearly see the SSD nope. increases that a lot of people were expecting. And so that's been some real silver lining. And, and, you know, I've been told that power supplies are going to get dirt cheap because some distributors have been talking to me how, like, someone like, um, I didn't get an exact name because they didn't want to say, but let's say, I don't know, like EVGA makes power supplies. So they'll say, yeah, we'll give you a 3070 if you buy three power supplies with it. So there's a lot of distributors that have just warehouses of power supplies now that they're going to have to dump at a certain point, Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to get to, though, is I think we're going to get closer to MSRP but I don't really ever see us plummeting below it this generation. I just think the shortages are always going to be there. And I couldn't agree more with what you said about, it's just going to be, I think it is just going to be painful if you think of PC gaming the way you used to five years ago. Because I'm I'm here to, I do not think those years are coming back anytime soon of like the, you know, what do, where do I even start, right? If we go back to like the R9 380, like, you know, mid-range back then, it was like two hundred. like, I don't think we're going back to a $200 mid-range. I don't think we're, you know, I don't think so. But I I would almost compare this to a worse, in terms of pricing situation, to what happened kind of around the 360 and the PS3, now that I'm thinking about it, where around the 360 and PS3 launch, it's like, what do you want me to tell you? Those consoles were really, really cheap for the performance they gave you. But give it a few years... And PC is innovating very quickly. I, you know, when you get to RDNA 4, we're going to have things like five, six times stronger than what's in the console. So it might cost more, but at least eventually you'll be getting a lot more. I just think the next year is going to be painful if you're a budget gamer. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And I'd tell you, the one thing that uh, has really been uh, kind of accelerating a lot of this is that for, you know, in between 2005 and 2010, mm-hmm. uh, LCD technology and, 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 uh, you know, monitors didn't yeah. really evolve much. No. And it's not until about 2015 that, that we started to get, you know, 
significantly higher resolutions for less money. And then OLED came in, mm-hmm. and then a higher uh, refresh rate uh, monitors. FreeSync and G-Sync out. made it all better, too. Yeah, and all of these things kind of did in a very short period of time that really pushed uh, graphics technology because people have a better overall experience just with their monitor. Mm-hmm. And so you, they had to really catch up in, in terms of the hardware pushing all that to be able to take the most advantage of that. And, you know, to, to give these people who are giving you these extra features, um, you know, a reason for consumers to buy these more expensive monitors. Yeah. And I mean, with things like FSR, DLSS, Z super sampling, I mean, you're getting to a point where, you know, it's funny, like I have an RTX 3070 that I actually only got for rendering videos for YouTube. Like, that's actually why I got it. It really wasn't for more gaming performance. And it's, you know, maybe three to four times stronger than my, like, I, I undervolted and overclocked this RTX 2060 Max-Q in my laptop. But, you know, when I'm traveling, despite that graphics card being three times weaker or something, you know, a lot of my old games, it actually runs in 4K60. <laughs> a lot of current games, it runs at 1080p60 or 1440p60, no issue. It's not that bad. And then once you throw in DLSS and FSR, I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's funny how it's like, at the very least, though, compared to 10, 15 years ago, at least you can run every game that's coming out if you have a decent SSD and a graphics card. You know, and that just yeah. wasn't the case before as kind of a consolation prize for rising prices, I'd say. Yeah, because everybody's got a CPU that can yeah that can push stuff. I mean, not, you know, obviously to the max, but all of the AMD 5000 series stuff. Oh, yeah. They're all clocked around the same thing. And then if, you, if you've got four cores or four threads available, then you're going to be perfectly fine <laughs> in the vast majority of these titles. That you know you're not going to get a better experience going with an eleven nine hundred K from Intel. Yeah. So let's move on to some final reader mail questions here. Sure. Then uh, Mark Smith writes in and he says, "Hi Tom, hello Josh. Thank you for this opportunity to ask a question. I'm learning and observing how major of a role TSMC plays in the fabrication of chips for companies around the world. How would the industry deal with the loss of output from TSMC?" Not getting too political, but what if one day soon Taiwan was cut off from being able to sell their current production to companies that sell products outside of their region? They've spoken about building foundries here in the U.S., but that is years off from completion once they cement their plans. How could Intel's production help to make the the difference, and how would something like this change the marketplace for PCs and tech in general that depend on TSMC? And, you know, this kind of goes hand-in-hand with QuickJumper's question about how successful you believe intel could be with their new idm strategy yeah um there's just not enough you know clean space right now for uh for cutting edge products and uh you know you've got apple nvidia amd intel qualcomm um mediatek all of these guys uh they they require wafers for their product stacks and there are only so many wafer starts a week that TSMC has for these advanced uh, process technologies. Samsung, I mean, if, if something were happened to TSMC, we'd, we'd be screwed in, in multiple ways because obviously it would probably involve China and the vast majority of, of you know computer parts are all yeah. produced in China. And so there would be you know some real blowback there. And if something happens in Taiwan, that would mean something's happening on mainland. All the, well, half of the packaging and integration is done in China too, yep. so it's not just Taiwan. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, Indonesia is big in sure. packaging yeah. as well, interestingly enough. Uh, but yeah, when if something were to happen to TSMC, I mean, it would make this situation we're in now 10 times worse. I mean, car companies would not be able to produce any cars because there's just no chips. Um, they would have to really adjust their designs to go with other existing foundries like Global Foundries. Uh, Intel would have to open up some stuff on their end. I mean, they would make money, but uh, Intel's manufacturing is not kind of the plug and play that mm-hmm. TSMC and Samsung Global Foundries nope. because, you know, the, their thing is, we provide you with the tools to make manufacturing your product easier. Intel is, we're going to have our foundry engineers work hand in hand with our design yep. engineers. And, you know, there's, there's, now they're starting to get with, you know, a common software and, and more, uh, you know, design libraries that, that, that are portable to all these EDA software products that, that, you know, NVIDIA and AMD and those guys all, all utilize to kind of compile their chips. Um, but for the longest time, Intel didn't do that. And that was one of their advantages that they had these guys working hand in hand so closely that you can get really, really dense products that have high switching rates and reasonable power uh, consumption and heat production. And with, uh, you know, kind of the more mass produced uh, automated uh, place and route, uh, you couldn't get the efficiencies that Intel did. But of course, you know, that cost man hours and there was a lot of engineers involved and, even though you know they had eighty to ninety percent of of the market share at the time, they could afford to do that kind of work and give them advantage over these other guys. But now we've got designs that are you know twelve to twenty billion transistors, and you just can't hire enough people to be able to do as much you know hand placing uh, hand placement of transistors that that they were able to do in the past. And so you have to have you know much more complex EDA software, um, you know better design libraries. All this stuff to come together, and I think that you know Intel is is getting to that point. But if they were to want to be a true foundry and work with their you know customers instead of like you know I think they said the 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 previous frenemies uh, that they had utilizing some of their um, some of their foundry uh, products, they're going to have to change around a lot of stuff. But um, you know they still have a lot of clean space, but they still have a lot of products of their own that they do, and not just CPUs. So Intel's a big company, and they've got a lot of products. But it would it would Global Foundries would then really take off, and they would be able to have extra yep. cash to pour into next generation nodes. Samsung would be the same thing. I mean, they've got a workable eight nanometer product that uh, Nvidia uses for their RTX series. But yeah, I mean, you could see then. You know, global foundries may even you know go into a license agreement with remains of TSMC if 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 the production is, you know, pretty much dead from TSMC, then then I could see you know some of that IP going over and being shared, but it would still take a year to implement at the very least. Yeah, I mean, so we would be hurting for chips. I think to directly answer his question too, the answer is entirely different from if this were to happen ten years from now and if this were to happen now. I mean, if TSMC and the production that's connected to it and packaging in mainland China were to shut down due to some, you know, horrible, you know, international event. Now, I mean, look, I don't know what to tell you. This would be very different than the current shortages. We're just not getting new stuff for years. Just out of nowhere. Yeah. Hey, guys, 
out of nowhere, no new PS5s, this out of it. nowhere, no new RDNA 2 chips, out of nowhere, all of that. You know, if this happened... We're going back to uh, Global Foundry's 12 nanometer for uh, our next generation product, and it's going to run really hot. Yep. Pull a lot of power, and it's not going to be as fast as... Could have been. But, you know, you can at least buy one. Yep, that, that it would be... Pretty bad. Now, in 10 years, who knows? Maybe Global Foundries will start to catch up. Maybe Samsung will be somewhere else. Maybe Intel will have figured out how to become a good IDM. But right now, they're not. Yeah. You know, and I guess, well, so do you think Intel, they're talking about becoming an IDM? Do you think that's something that's really going to be successful? Or to what degree do you think it will be? It is really hard to say. Uh, because if Intel can keep a high percent of utilization of their fabs with their own products, they have no interest of being an IDM. They, they just right. don't want to be a third-party foundry. It just, you know, it's a whole different mindset and uh, economic reality for a company who has been so closely meshed in terms of design and foundry work that going third-party um, is really the the only reason they're doing it is, is if they've got low utilization of their foundries because these things run 24-7, 365. I mean, there are no days off. If you're not running any product... I mean, they they just can't shut these things down for like an eight-hour shift. It it just doesn't work that way. Things have to constantly be moving, and so it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a big issue. Uh, just because foundries are so expensive, um, developing next-generation process nodes again, it's it's billions of dollars. Uh, when even just you know a, a next-generation mask is like a five million dollar piece of quartz that. Uh, you know, it's hard to produce, but, you know, and that's why it costs as much as it does. It's it's just, you eventually have to look at your economics and say, we've got to do this because we simply can't mm. uh, effectively run our fabs and keep the margins at where we're at. We either take a massive margin hit because we're paying people to stay at these fabs. We're paying them to get, you know, keep um, powered up. And moving through wafers, even though it's going to be at a slower rate and there's fewer wafer starts per week, but they can't just shut down fabs. They they don't work that way. Yeah, I mean, I would even go as far as to say that, or, or what I would want to remind everyone is Intel was hitting capacity problems before everyone else with their 14 nanometer capacity problems like a couple of years ago. And so if they're buying up TSMC capacity, it's probably largely because if they had capacity problems supplying, enough, you know, if people wanted their chips so badly when they were behind technologically, what do you think is going to happen when they start catching up to AMD over the next two years? They, a big reason to buy up TSMC capacity is that they're just going to need as much as they can get. And so I think they want to be an IDM as an option, but I don't see who they're going to give these contracts to when they always run out of capacity for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, you know, part of that was just because 14 nanometers, 14 nanometers, and they, you know, had space that they cut off to develop 10 nanometer stuff. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know, they, they couldn't produce it in good enough numbers and the yields were crap and the bins were awful. And, you know, they just had so few usable products that, you know, it cost a lot to make and, and they couldn't sell them for very much. So, you know, you had a balance there. Of, you know, we got to give a certain amount of manufacturing to this new 10 nanometer mode that we're trying to get viable. And that takes away the 14 nanometer stuff. But because it's 14 nanometer, I mean, if we want to release a new chip, 
it's going to inflate the size of that die because we need mm-hmm. to add more features and more performance versus what happened last year uh, with the older part. And so it, it just makes the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's security problems at the same time, too. A lot of people I talked to in servers were just doubling the size of their Intel servers to make up for losing half the performance because that was easier than switching to AMD or something. Yeah, and talk about a good time for AMD to actually release a competitive part. Yes. I mean, I've got the story of my my boss from my other work uh, went to a a Dell convention for uh, servers, and uh, this was when Epic was first released. And... uh, People were complaining to the reps, like, you know, we were ordering a server and we're looking at seven to 10 weeks before delivery. And the guy said, we know that's a problem, but have you thought about AMD? Mm -hmm. And this was back in 2018. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people in there just laughed. They laughed and laughed. Yeah, we're going to buy an AMD. Well, they're not laughing now. They're actually buying AMD Epic processors because they work, they're dense, they're power efficient. And uh, yeah, so it's it's interesting and fun how that world has has changed dramatically because Intel's the, the AMD's hitting them where it really hurts, and that's the really high margin marketplace. And I mean, their products are superior because Intel stuck at fourteen nanometer for a lot of these you know high end Xeons, and they're they're starting to do the ten nanometer stuff. But AMD at at seven is just kicking them. Yeah. Well, on. That note, though, of like Intel's products, I do want to ask this question. AC666 writes in, he says, Hi, Josh and Mr. Schmoozer. As someone who would have witnessed the i740 and Larrabee, my question to you is, what are your thoughts and expectations for DG2 and future generations of graphics cards at Intel as they enter the dedicated market in a fashion seemingly similar to what's happened with Zen, at least in my opinion? What sort of competition yeah. do you expect them to bring, especially when they'll be buying TSMC's wafers? And how do you think they'll impact the gamers? Intel clearly cares so much about, I think he made that last point sarcastically. <laughs> but anyways, thanks, yeah. guys, and stay awesome. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I was around at the i740, and that would they had bought Lockheed's Starfighter mm. design and design team, and they had brought them into Intel to do the graphics because Lockheed was was wanting to get away with that. I mean, they originally had created these 3D guys to, to drive simulators and to you know possibly do avionics and and whatnot, and so they 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 sold it pretty much in mass to uh, Intel, and we thought that Intel was going to then be kind of the next 3D effects. But Intel was of the opinion that, hey, we own the CPU market. We don't own a 3D market. And we would rather accentuate CPUs because I think that they were truly of the opinion, kind of of what Tim Sweeney from Epic, that you remember back in the early 2000s, he said, you know, 3D graphics is, is going to be a dead end because eventually we're going to have so much compute in the CPU and that general <laughs> purpose that it's going to go back to that. And in ways, he's kind of right yeah, because some ways, 3D I graphics guess. has become more general purpose, but it's still not a CPU and there's mm-hmm. still a lot of fixed function um, type functionality. Well, and you have people like Linus Tech Tips running Crisis on, an, uh, on a Threadripper with 64 cores, but at the same time, you know, NVIDIA Lovelace and RDNA 3 might have like 15,000 stream processors or some insane yeah. number. Yeah. So. yeah, and, and exactly. And, but, uh, but Intel was betting that their CPUs would eventually make software rendering the de facto standard, and it would be as good as any 3D render out there. Mm. Now, of course, we know that 
it doesn't work that way because there's just so much functionality in, in a modern 3D rasterizing and ray tracing uh, GPU that, you know, CPUs still may get one or two frames per second to give a quality that a GPU is doing 140 plus yeah. frames per second. It just is, it's, that's just the way it works. And, uh, but they, but they really poo pooed on 3D graphics thinking that, you know, eventually everything's going to go back onto the CPU. And it's going to be great. And then they transferred those guys and they started making integrated chipset graphics that, you know, had limited 3D functionality, but, you know, and, and it sucked. But uh, I think this is going to be much different. I think that when they've seen what NVIDIA has done with their Quadro series and their Tesla series of cards, and are they're, they're just these huge, massive number crunchers that are much more focused than a general-purpose CPU or even general-purpose CPU with, with vector extensions. Um, I think that Intel is finally going to pay attention to 3D graphics. And I think that... So, so you Roger think it's going to be far more successful than what happened before? Because I've seen so many people compare this to then, and I'm like, I don't know that that's fair to compare it to before. I don't... I, it's a very different world. And it's, you know... They 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 tried with Larrabee with you know fifty two very simple Pentium cores with vector extensions uh, built onto it, and they ran into a lot of issues and stuff that you know Nvidia and AMD had essentially solved with their three D graphics and how they handle threads and warps and and dispatch and and all of these things that are really really extremely complex to keep all of these you know engines in motion and uh, Intel had to you know really rewrite the book on their technology to get it to be as effective as it is now. And so their Z graphics are, you know, a, a good chunk up in terms of capabilities and performance than previous, but it still doesn't match well with what AMD has uh, with their, their new Vega series in the, uh, in the 5000 series uh, APUs. But I think that, you know, we're going to see a mid range, Card mm-hmm. and now, how do you define mid range though? Because I think this is up for debate. Okay, it's going to be a two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollar card. Mm-hmm. Is that even mid range anymore though? Because I think if it were to come out half a year ago, you'd say that's mid range. I almost wonder if that's low end at this point. Maybe you know what I mean though. But I think that they're going to have a low end one hundred to one hundred twenty dollar product that actually, you know, might be more. Or less, a little less capable than like a sixteen sixty. Mm-hmm. Yes, but that's what can, I expect. You know, as well. actually produce these. Yeah, so I think that that would be the new. You know, low end would be that range, but two fifty to three hundred is is going to be their mid range. Yeah, and what like so what like around like a thirty sixty in performance probably there or something. Yep. And and I have seen some samples. I did. I, you know, I leaked actual the first pcbs and coolers and z super sampling which it was funny to see intel start showing off like mock-ups for coolers that look a lot like the prototypes i got a hold of like half Mm -hmm. a year ago from what i've heard they may be able to get up to around a 3070 or a little higher but i don't know how many of those samples can hit that and i don't know how many products they're gonna hit i i think even if they can launch something as competitive as like what AMD is calling mid-range now for below 300, that's at least a market where AMD and NVIDIA aren't even bothering to compete in anymore. So it could help a lot. Yeah, it would be really nice. And uh, But a problem that Intel's going to have is their, their software base is, is prehistoric as compared to what AMD and NVIDIA has. 
uh, in terms of driver technologies and uh, shader rewrites for individual games. I mean, there's a reason why the latest NVIDIA drivers are 700 megs in size. Yeah. It's because they've got replacement shaders that are more, you know, uh, optimized for their their products with all of these different games. And that's just, you know, a very, it's a mind-bogglingly hard amount of work to do that these, you know, driver developers do on a per case basis when you're dealing with, you know, three different architectures, uh, even though they all have the same basis, but you're, you've got a brand new game coming out and you've got to make sure that each one runs it and, uh, you know, make the replacements where, you know, absolutely necessary, uh, to get good performance. So it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a cold war that Intel is, has not really dug into yet. I mean, they've got the money to sure, spend right. to, to, buy, to buy the, the developers, but it's uh, it's going to be tough to do, and uh, they're going to be a little behind the ball when it comes to uh, driver support and quality. Are you sure they will, or what? are you just expecting? Because they have a lot of money. They have I'm a lot of people. It. They have a lot of money, but I mean, you know, if you, if you play on any of their integrated graphics, there are still issues that pop up, and um, you know. You see these issues with their integrated graphics firsthand because I haven't really had many problems lately. Maybe five years yeah, well, ago. Well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you know, with, with cutting edge, higher end uh, applications, you're, you're just, it's, it's not a fun uh, experience. It's not like you're going to get flashing textures or, you know, constant crash to desktops. It's just not a very optimized mm-hmm. and, and enjoyable experience. And, you know, part of that is just, you know, the amount of work that they have to do on the software side. But you expect them to target the mid-range now, have it successfully hit those performance goals, and then just continue to try to get up higher generation after gen? They don't have the IP, the visual IP that AMD and NVIDIA does. And they have to develop a lot of that, and they're going to have to reinvent the wheel in ways so that they don't step mm. on AMD and uh, NVIDIA's rights and uh, property. Uh, because that's just billions of dollars mm. in uh, in legal fees that they would like to avoid, and uh, so yeah, I mean there are more one ways to skin a cat. But you know, AMD and and Nvidia both have very 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 robust uh, architectures that do very well here. And Intel is you know they're trying to take some of the basic stuff that they had developed for chipsets and expand that out to be much more uh, competitive in terms of features and performance. And, uh, you know, they, they, they probably are going to have a few tricks up their sleeve mm-hmm. as compared to, uh, you know, what people are expecting. And so that's going to be kind of nice to see. Uh, but, you know, they have a DLSS. Uh, Z Super Sampling, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That looks pretty good. We'll see, like right? It works but great. It looks good. Yeah. 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 And I've also heard so. they're working on some low latency software for you know reducing you know the click to shooting a gun in a game that we haven't mm-hmm. seen publicly yet but it seems like that's a thing they're going to try to do too is be low yeah. latency yeah i mean they, they know where the bar's at mm-hmm. and uh they've invested money into getting Raja and all these other guys in here and they've hired people away from nvidia and they've hired people away from amd uh, to to help flesh out all the design groups and engineering and and product development. Uh, so you know, I, I this is not going to be 1998 mm. again, where they you know put out this the <laughs> yeah. you know, a tremendous amount of i740 parts for dirt cheap, and then just never really develop beyond that. 
Well, and something I point out to people that just disregard Z like it's not going to be successful, which it seems like people aren't doing now that they're seeing the marketing pop up because it feels more real now. But a lot of people were yeah. just disregarding it early this year as I would say, hey, look, do you know how bad that would look to investors if they built this entire group with way more effort than before and they couldn't even launch something? I mean, it would be insane. Like, they have to yeah, succeed, yeah. guys. It's a lot of money that they've sunk. But, you know, it's it's money that they think that they're, they believe is, is going to be well spent because, you know, next generation visualization, next generation of machine learning, all of these things are going to lean upon this hardware that does very, very specific things very quickly and, you know, very, very wide that uh they're 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 finally you know getting in on it they they've they've seen the billions that uh Nvidia has made how they're dominating the market how their CUDA you know software uh platform is the de facto one to use uh for a lot of this and and they've got a long way to go before they're really competitive with Nvidia there because it's not only hardware but it's a huge amount of software and a tremendous amount of mind share of the people who are developing um these applications for you know GP GPU machine learning, all the AI stuff and 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 uh, just the the number crunching that these parts can do. Yeah, and I mean, I, I just it's kind of like in a similar way to Zen with Epic when Intel was falling behind. DG two couldn't have a better year to enter the market when Nvidia and AMD are ignoring the low end. I mean, honestly, this yep. couldn't be a better yep. time. Yeah, they just need to speed it up rather than being what a December, January launch is what they're uh, quarter expecting. one. Yeah, quarter one. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, if, if they can hit between 250 and 300, they're going to sell a tremendous amount of parts because there's still a lot of people who need GPUs and don't want to spend mm-hmm. $700 to $1,000 to get something useful. Yeah. Well, and um, the only thing I would say though is the second that starts slipping to quarter two, it's like, come on, when's RDNA 3 and L- NVIDIA Lovelace yeah. coming out, guys? At a certain point. Yeah, that's 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 going to be Q3 probably. Right. But yeah. But it's like, that's yeah. why I say, is it really mid-range if one quarter later, you know, AMD's launching that? Yeah, but what are they going to offer? I mean, uh, the 3050, uh, from what I hear, is not that impressive of a part. And that was, you know, I, I think essentially a laptop version, but a laptop 1660 was, you know, kicking it all over the so, place. And uh, I can answer that. Yeah. So, I, right. So, the like what I what it sounds like AMD is probably going to do is obviously they're going to use RDNA 3 for most of the top end of the lineup, but it sounds like they may die shrink Navi 22 to six nanometer and then make that the 7500 XT. So, if they do that, it's really not a full die shrink, six nanometers design compatible with seven, but if they just, you know, it's about 10, 15% better, if they just rebrand the 6700 XT. As like a three fifty dollar seventy five hundred XT, and it's actually as strong as a thirty seventy. That puts a lot of pressure on what Intel can price these parts at if they take too long yep. to get them out. Yep, you're absolutely right. And that's not RDNA three, so they could launch it sooner. Yep, but uh, and they've got the software, so you know all the drivers are. It's going to work. Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is I'm excited for Intel, but Scotty Quarter One guys, come on. <laughs> That's what the heck's yeah, going on. Yeah. I mean, they've they've got a they've got a long road, a long road to hoe because everybody else is so much farther beyond where they are. And sure, they they brought in a lot of people, but they still have to build up a product. They got to build the software stack. They've they've got 
a tremendous amount of stuff to do in a very, very short amount of time. Uh, in, in terms like this, you know, hardware is almost easier <laughs> than, than everything, all the other moving parts that you need to get actual products out there. And they're going to have to find board partners who are willing to do that and willing to piss off AMD and NVIDIA to be able to, you know, produce these products. They're going to find them, but we have no idea what MSI and ASUS and, and uh, EVGA and all these other guys are, are going to do. And some are, you know, more tightly bound to AMD and the others to NVIDIA. And so who do you get to produce these boards? MSI. Are going to just, you know, MSI is going to do some intense. That's, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, to be fair, though, this was like from a couple of months ago. I haven't really paid attention to those notes for a while. But yeah, it sounds like MSI may be yeah. ASUS. Okay. Well, it would make sense because they, they at least have both mm-hmm. flavors of all of their parts. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how well that they deal with Intel. Well, and how well Intel, Intel deals is, with is, them, because this is kind of new for them, you know. It is. I mean, that's the re. I mean, but they've they've all been chipset sure. partners from other boards, right? For, so for that's ages. probably where uh, that's coming from too. Then, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see, and there's going to be some birthing pains, and uh, yeah, I, it's going to be interesting to see how much pushback AMD and Nvidia will have to some of these board products partners. Uh, you know, I don't think anything in terms of you know monopoly, but. It's like, hey, you're you're selling a bunch of Intel cards. Well, this other guy's not selling as many, and so I'm going to give them a higher portion of of chips uh, available to them. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's going to be the lawyers are going to be happy for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been going on for a while here. I I think I, oh, yeah. I think I want to ask one final question then, just to round things out. So. Uh, KJM015 writes in, he says, in your experience, what was the most impactful generational leap in performance for CPUs and GPUs in the past 20 years? Uh, Which boy. generation for you made the biggest impact in generational performance? Uh, probably the K7, the original K7. That was that was the biggest jump. It was a huge jump from the K63 and the K62 Plus, which is what, you know, the mainstream parts from AMD, it had so much better gaming performance, it wasn't even funny. <laughs> and not only that, but it outperformed any similarly clocked Pentium 3. I mean, by a significant amount. And we're talking like 20%. And so, and not only that, but they had at the time uh, products that went up to 600 megahertz. Mm-hmm. With the K7, I think the 550 was the the initial faster. They had a 450, 500, and 550, but then they quickly came out with a 600. And Intel was stuck at like 500 megahertz mm-hmm. with the Pentium 3. They couldn't get above that with their current designs and, and process technology. And so AMD had a tremendous uh, advantage over Intel for quite some time. Even though K7 didn't sell as much as they were hoping, uh, it was still... It, it got them really over the hump of the K6. A lot of people had, you know, much more, uh, much better um, experience with the K7 because they had better chipsets. It was the uh, originally the slot A, and then it became socket A, and they had, you know, support from, you know, AMD, uh, not AMD, but uh, yeah, AMD had its own Iron mm-hmm. Gate chipset, and then Via, and then SIS came aboard. And eventually, NVIDIA uh, had their chipset products. Very so, briefly. <laughs> you know, it, it became a very robust uh, ecosystem for uh, for AMD and the K7 because it was 
just such a good, good part. The next one would be um, the original Athlon 64. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was just such a tremendously better part than the Pentium 4 and then the previous uh, AMD Athlon XP. So, and so, so yeah, that those was, products. It was just massive. But they weren't as successful as they are now, though. Like Zen, by far, I think has proven yeah, oh, more successful. Yeah, yeah, and and they've been able to execute yes. well for the past four years, and they're continuing mm-hmm. to execute. When you think back of Athlon sixty four, that was a two thousand three two thousand four product. By two thousand six, they were dead in the water against Core, mm-hmm. and they couldn't innovate fast enough with their Athlon sixty four architecture. And uh, even though you know they 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 staved them off with the Phenom two, um, that's what I would. Yeah, they staved them off. That's how I'd yeah. put it. Yeah, that was uh, in terms of CPUs. That's that was the the biggest jump um, for GPUs. Yeah, the biggest jump. I, I want to know what you'd say for GPUs. It was it was it was Voodoo graphics. Mm-hmm. I mean, going from a software rendering with you know pixels at three twenty by four eighty or three twenty by uh, two forty three twenty by two forty. Good yes. lord, um, going to six forty by four eighty with bilinear filtering, um, and 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 a higher triangle rate. Uh, it was it was it was amazing. It was it was seeing the lights coming on for the first time. It was it was just a great experience, and and never had experienced anything else quite like that. And I guess number two, um, the second would be going to the the GTX sixty eight hundred series and the Radeon four hundred series. They're all at the same time. I can't remember. It was the back then. Just two thousand five through two thousand eight was crazy for AMD and Nvidia yeah. competition. Yeah. If you go back and read about it, yeah. So two thousand four was really when the sixty eight hundred uh, series, where they really caught up, and ATI uh, had their last generation before AMD bought them up. Uh, those were those were huge jumps in overall performance from the previous generation. Like doubling, I mean, it, right? it was a or massive. More. Oh, it was, it was a little bit more, and plus you got you know DX9 really fast DX9 because that was the year after the FX5800 series, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I've got one sitting on the wall. 5800 right at next issues. To me. Oh, it it had a few, and uh, but yeah, it was uh, so it felt big just because of that alone, you know. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, and and uh, I guess the other one that really comes sticks out is is running a 9700 Pro. For the first time after going to that from a GeForce 4. Because mm-hmm. I remember running Call of Duty. Uh, was it Call of Duty? No, it was Medal of Honor, Allied Assault. That was the big title at the time. And you could run it at reasonable performance at 1280 by 1024. But you had to turn off AA. Yes. And you could really run it nicely at 1024 by 768. AA was such a... 4XAA. It was so intensive back then. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But I installed a, a 9700 Pro, and I could run that at 1600 by 1200 with 4xAA at great rates. Mm-hmm. And it was that was that was one that again really stuck out in my mind because it was that was a next generation product that that AMD just smoked, uh, ATI smoked Nvidia. I mean thoroughly because that was that was GeForce Four, and then they had the FX series that was delayed, 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 and when it finally came out. It was the blow to yeah. <laughs> the Dustbuster edition and all the other rendering issues and you know how they kind of bolted on uh, floating point shading to to a previous kind of rendering. Uh, it was it was a mess. So well, 
And yeah. I think it's important for you to point that out because right now I'm starting to put out early information about RDNA 3 and NVIDIA's next gen, and they sound like bigger than what Ampere was or bigger than what RDNA, well, and around as big as what RDNA 2 was. But, and people go, well, that can't be possible. Ampere was the biggest leap ever. And I'm like, guys, Ampere wasn't, I know NVIDIA said for some reason it was the biggest leap. And I was just, Pascal was a 60% leap over Maxwell and they were doubling performance or 50% increases every year before that. This is Ampere was one of the smaller leaps, honestly, guys, yeah. in the past 15 years. Yeah, it was a good leap, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the massive jump that like a 6,800 was at the time um, from, from its previous generation. And not only that, but how they architected it, it was uh, so much easier to actually run these titles. And, uh, you know, I remember when, when Far Cry came out and the, it had, interesting visual issues when run on a 5000 series FX uh, GPU that ATI didn't have and uh, interestingly enough the 6800 didn't have those same issues it was uh, it was a very broken architecture so yeah um, Ampere was nice but there were previous ones that uh, really really raised the bar in terms of performance and visual quality mm-hmm. yeah and I think although prices are going up, Hopefully, at least we'll get some insane increases again. But, uh, yeah. well, I've already, you know, I've had you on for quite a while. I uh, I think that's a good place to close on is another thing looking back and then at the future. And, um, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have, do you want to plug anything? I mean, you know, uh, Twitter or what? Uh, I mean, maybe there's a website. Uh, sure, you can you can follow me on uh, Twitter. I, I post burger pictures. It's... Uh, you know, twitter.com slash uh, Josh D. Walters. And I'll have a link in the description for that as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did you ever get a chance to, to read the uh, Slowing Down the Process migration? I did. I at least read a fair amount of it. And it was funny to look yeah. back at the talks of... Like, and there will be. I already have a link in the description that, uh, on this mm-hmm. page for people who are curious. It was interesting reading you talking about the slowing of Moore's Law and what's going to happen. And it is quite prophetic, you know. It went from just no. It was 2004. I wrote that. Puppy. Yeah. So yeah. And even back then, we knew that things were not going to be the land of milk and honey uh, with when it comes to process technology. It was just. There are so many hurdles, and physics is is a horrible, horrible thing to try to deal with. Uh, so, yeah, if you have time, uh, you know, go on archive.com and, or net or whatever that is, org, and uh, look that up. But, yeah, thanks for having me. There's nothing else I really need to plug. Uh, PC Per Podcast on Wednesday nights. You can join in live. But, uh, you know, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to this. It was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, of course, the pleasure's been mine. And hopefully the pleasure's been all the people who listen to this. And uh, yeah, thanks to you again, and thank you to everyone for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans... 
Patrons are what makes Moore's Law's Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums, and give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it, and so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad al Kawari, Frederick Lau, Metro Core, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Lodge, ABG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Wilkinkilo, Fatboy Disru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N. Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jane Router, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Ali Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Tick Dickler, Joaquin Hagen, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Sue Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stu, Elena Nanyan, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Caravan, Brett Summers, Judd Y, Denovan Russell, no- Noah Nicolella, Slicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulu, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, DeHuhu, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Rule Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Kyle Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie, Kalik, Zuza, Michael Deaton, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Ro- uh, Scott Ref Schneider, My Sharona, Y Truly, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amy Bill Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sami Malas, Kevin Chin, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Olden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Garanadin, Benjamin Oshley, Zijits, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wissink, Sam Vensel, Mark Mitchell, Bruchu, Jeremy Show, James Anderson, Jesse Jeskowiak, Ian Clifford, Tyler Lindley, MJB1, Gordon Freeman, Michelle Pell, and thank you to Sahara for the music.